If you are 20 years old, traveling in the Netherlands, and your money, identity, and your airplane ticket to get you back home was stolen, what would you do? If you were Eric Tag, you'd borrow some money, use it to put an ad on the local paper, and begin your career as a vocalist. It was this episode in Eric's life that thrust him into becoming one of the quintessential voices in the West Coast genre. Traveling back to the States to record his first album, Smile and Memories, in 1975, is when Eric first met guitarist Lee Rittenauer, which blossomed into a long-lasting musical relationship. Eric was Rittenauer's feature vocalist and writing partner on two of his biggest albums, Rit and Rit 2, including the song Is It You, which hit the top 15 on the pop chart and number one on the R&B chart in the USA. During this period, Eric released two additional solo albums, Rendezvous in 1977 and Dreamwalkin' in 1982. It wasn't until 1997 that he released his fourth solo record, Through My Eyes. Eric now spends his time in Greenville, Texas, working and writing music for his ministry. Inside Music Cast welcomes Eric Tag. Hey Eric, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's nice to, to welcome a, a Midwesterner to the show. You're originally from Illinois, is that right? That's way back there. <laughs> I was in Illinois when I was uh, five and a half years old, so okay. I don't even think I can I can talk that way anymore. Let's see. I'm going back to Illinois. No, I'm going back to Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> so you were from upstate Illinois then, right? Well, let's see. Uh, soybean capital of the world. Uh, right. Decatur, <laughs> Illinois. Right Decatur. In the, oh, right. Right in the smack dab middle of Illinois. Okay, yeah. okay. Yes, I've been through there before. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, you've, uh, you know, people know you when they, those that are into music in the West Coast and the, the sort of vibe that we follow, most people uh, recognize you as a, as a vocalist, but you're pretty much a very accomplished musician. So as a kid, you know, just uh, where did you get your musical appetite from? Uh, I mean, uh, I know you, you have brother, a brother. I don't know how many brothers you have, but give me a little bit about your environment of uh, where you got your, your hunger and your vibe for, for music. Yeah, yeah. My parents were both uh, music, music majors, yeah. and uh, my dad was a choir director at a Presbyterian church up there in, uh, in Decatur, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was uh, into the... The whole thing. My mother was a music teacher, so uh, you know, there's that. And then <laughs> I only have one brother. He's 18 months older than me. Mm-hmm. You know Larry Tag, right? Sure, yes. exactly. Okay, yeah. So he was a big influence as well. And you know, he got right into the cello at an early age, probably third grade or something. Yeah. He started playing cello, and um, that wasn't really for me. So I started playing flute. Believe it or not, you really? know, I didn't care what the guys called me. I was going to play flute. <laughs> but uh, after a couple of years, I think Larry uh, switched over to electric bass. Now, that mm-hmm. was starting to get cool. Now, that was cool, yeah. And, uh, you know, my mother actually gave me some piano lessons somewhere along the way. Uh, probably when I was about six years old, she tried to uh, teach me some piano. And I guess I, you know, learned how to hold my hands and all that stuff on the keys, but I was not interested in doing that. It just, you know, there wasn't some, I was more into running fast, yeah. running really fast. Interesting. So um, I, I dropped, after maybe a year with my mom, I, I dropped the piano lessons. And, uh, but the, when oh, my brother got this bass, uh, that was pretty cool. So um, by the time I was 14, my, my Sunday school teacher took our class to see Jimi Hendrix. No kidding. That was my first concert. <laughs> Your Sunday school teacher. Oh, my gosh. My Sunday school teacher <laughs> took us to see Jimi Hendrix at the State Fair Music Hall in Dallas, Texas. And this was, uh, I guess, right after Woodstock, okay? So he was doing the burning the guitar thing and all that, oh, you know. Oh, my gosh. The lighter fluid. Yeah. And, 
knocking the stage lights out with his, you know, <laughs> with his guitar, and uh, it blew my mind. Basically, it blew my mind, and uh, it probably blew your teacher's mind too. Well, you know, I don't think he knew what he was getting. <laughs> yeah, that's into. what I mean. Uh, he was trying to just, you know, relate to us kids, you know. So he thought he'd do something on our list, you know, and, yeah. he, and he did it, and uh, and wow. it changed my life. It just changed my life. I knew what I wanted to do, and so. Uh, I started growing my hair, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I picked up my brother's bass when he wasn't around, you know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I would practice with the records, you know, that we had. I would practice hearing the bass parts and trying to cop them, you know. And one one time, I put a scratch on my brother's bass somehow on the coffee table. Well, he knew immediately, and so he's been holding that against me the rest <laughs> of our lives. I have to do errands for him now. <laughs> You know, I have to go get Cokes, or, you know, I have to go get the new Mad Magazine, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. He says, well, you remember that <laughs> scratch you put on my bass? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> You're still paying for it, huh? So we were we're both uh, bass players at that point, <laughs> and uh, we never played together until uh, 1971. We actually went up to Colorado with a band called Heaven and Earth, and that's the only time that my brother and I ever played in a band together. We played about three months just traveling around uh, Montana, Nebraska, and Colorado, and just doing the road thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't any fun because my brother never wanted to do anything. And finally, we realized he had hepatitis. Oh my god! It wasn't you know drugs or anything like that. He just, I think it was just too many peanut butter sandwiches or something. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> he just turned yellow and didn't want to do anything, and wow. you know he had to go home. So. Wow. It kind of busted up the band, and uh, so I, I, I hightailed it back to uh, Texas as well yeah. at that point, and uh, I guess I was about 18, but okay. um, we've never been in the same town since, I don't think, to, to actually play together oh, uh, in, a, you know, in the same endeavor. You know, we've played on each other's records, I think, here and there, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. never been able to put it together since, and he's... He's all better now. He's not. He's not sick anymore. But good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good to know because yeah. he was a real drag to be around that whole summer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, around that time, or I guess you know, in and around that time, or maybe a couple of years later, you you somehow ended up in the Netherlands. And I, I've I've read some accounts about how you know this is this is where your career essentially began as a vocalist. And and I was just curious to know how you first of all how you ended up in the Netherlands. Okay, uh, that's another another small. Uh, story here. You know, I don't know if you know that or not, but I was in Stevie Ray Vaughan's first band. Really? Uh, yeah, he's from Dallas, and he's yeah. from Oak Cliff, which is where all the funky guys are from, what we called the funk guys. Now, uh, I was from North Dallas, which is the, we weren't rich, but I went to school with a lot of rich kids, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the snooty white guys that had all the good equipment and everything, but <laughs> the people in Oak Cliff weren't as well off, basically, and, you know, they had to work for everything. And uh, and I played with a bunch of guys from Oak Cliff um, because they knew how to play funky. I guess, you know, they, they were just more in touch with that side of the right. tracks, you know, so to speak, and mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how to really to do uh, the funk thing as a bass player. You know, I wanted, I wanted to play a lot of the black music I was hearing on the radio. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and uh, I just thought funk really meant playing jerky, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> right, right. And so I, I really didn't understand the whole concept. But um, I was around eighteen when uh, 
Stevie joined our band here in Dallas, and uh, he was 16. And he played, you know, he wanted to be just like his big brother. Yeah. And uh, his parents actually didn't even let him play the guitar. He had to play outside the house. <laughs> his parents wouldn't let him play because they had enough <laughs> on one one guitar player That's in funny. the family. They didn't want little Stevie to be like him. So he had to play all his guitar outside of the house. And he was still good. I mean, uh, he, he always had that fast kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played a lot of fraternity gigs and, and uh, that deal. But uh, at one point, my father came over to my house. I, I had moved out, and um, I had decided not to go to college. Uh, like I said, you know, the Jimi Hendrix thing changed my life. I knew what I wanted to do, and college wasn't part of the plan. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of school, I just uh, started living on my own and, uh, and playing gigs and stuff. And uh, my father came over one day. I hadn't seen him in maybe six or eight months, and he said, "Wow, you didn't. Uh, I didn't know this, but we're living on the same street." You know, it ended up he had moved to my neighborhood. I didn't even know we were living on the same street for about I don't know six or eight months. Yeah. But he came down and said, "Wow, uh, gosh, <laughs> I feel guilty because I sent your brother to school." He said, "You know, and and here you're not." going to school and you're you're playing the blues here in Dallas, you know, you're, you're 18 years old. I mean, that, that can't work out too good. You're going to end up uh, digging ditches, you know. Your dad was feeling guilty, man. Well, you know, he had been a musician. He knew what the life was about, you know. Yeah. And uh, I just said, no, Dad, you know, the band, they need me. And, uh, wow, we're doing great. We're playing gigs. And I'm learning uh, the blues just like anybody else. He said, yeah, but you gotta you got to live a little before you can play blues, right, you know. So uh, he said, well, well, think about this. I'll give you a ticket to Amsterdam, you know, if you want, instead of, uh, instead of you know, going to college. What do you think about that? <laughs> and it took me about 10 minutes of me thinking about that before I decided that was a pretty good plan. Holy cow. So at that point, I sold, you know, my, all my equipment and my truck and that kind of stuff. And uh, I had a wad of cash and a free ticket. To Europe, you know, thirteen countries with a Eurail pass, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, a Eurail pass it cost three hundred seventy-five dollars. Wow. For three months, you know, any any time you get on a train, it won't cost you anything. Right. Any train to anywhere in thirteen countries. Wow. Exactly. So you you know, and I, since I wasn't a student, and I was first class. I had to get <laughs> first class tickets, so that meant I was all alone in these train cars. <laughs> these plush, you know, sleeper cars. Yeah. And all I had was my flute. That's the only thing I didn't sell was my flute. And uh, so I could just set up shop in these in these sleeper cars and just get off the train anytime I wanted. Holy cow. Uh, you know, get on any train. If I didn't like the town, I would just uh, get back on the train, go anywhere. You know, wow. and it was the, the coolest thing. And I could play flute really all day and watch the scenery going by, you know, as these trains are going like... I don't know, 100 miles an hour at least. I yeah. guess now they go about 300 miles right. an hour. So. <laughs> but um, at the time, it was it was a pretty slick way to get around. And, um, you know, I would just get off if I, if I liked the town and uh, and just put my backpack in a locker and uh, start walking around, see if I meet anybody or uh, see if I found anything worth uh, hanging around for. Right. Uh, actually, after a couple of months, I, I had realized that... Uh, where I landed, Amsterdam, was actually one of the best places 
to go. <laughs> yeah. So I kept going back to Amsterdam. I actually, I'd met some people there and uh, kept going back there to kind of get mail and to just check in and stuff like that. But uh, Germany was also a um, great place to go. I, I had uh, some German... I was president of my German club in, in high school. <laughs> I knew uh, some German so I could get around a little bit. In, uh, Switzerland and Germany, those kind of places. And uh, there was a lot to see. So, But after a couple of months, um, I had been sleeping in a park in Amsterdam just to kind of save some money. And I used my uh, little money pouch as a pillow. And well, during the night, you know, and, uh, as long as I'm sleeping on it, nothing can happen, right? So, uh, well, during the night, I realized that I was sleeping on the hard ground, and I didn't have my pillow. Someone had ripped me off. Oh, okay? oh my gosh! So uh, I didn't have my ticket back and my and my money, et cetera, plane ticket and all the URL pass, all that stuff. I did have some some travelers checks that you know had been stolen. So, so I figured, well, I'll just go get the reimbursed on those travelers checks, right? Well, I went up to the Western Union place, and they said. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. The uh, the park where you've been sleeping is under investigation for fraud. You know these, uh, you know the travelers' checks fraud. So we can't we can't reimburse your checks until we complete our investigation. Oh my god! So in other words, I had no money and nothing. And uh, all I knew was that I had met a couple of people, you know, in a bar somewhere. So I went back and found these guys, and uh, I borrowed fifteen guilders, which was I guess about seven bucks at the time or something, and put an ad in the paper. They had a music paper called The Ear. Uh-huh. So I put an ad in the paper, you know, American musician, you know, plays keyboards and bass and flute and, and uh, you know, songwriter, et cetera, whatever, you know, whatever I said. I got one reply to the ad. <laughs> well, it was a band of all Dutch guys that played their own music, that had their own gigs, and that had a manager that was, uh, well, basically he was a millionaire. <laughs> okay. So I joined the band, I had no equipment, right? And so he bought me a keyboard rig, and uh, we had all these instant gigs, and I was helping them in their songwriting. We were making some records. You know, actually, <laughs> these are probably collector's items, but uh, I've seen some of the stuff on, you know, the Internet a little bit. It's a band called Beehive. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the guys, I think, is trying to make a living off selling beehive memorabilia. <laughs> what was his name? Is it Leo? Ben- yeah, Leo Benick. Benick, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I played with these guys for about a year, I guess, and I had to learn all the uh, musical terms in Dutch, you know? Yeah, and, right. And, uh, like, when you say, give me an E, they don't even have an E in, in Dutch. You know, if you say, give me an A, they're going to give you an E, okay? <laughs> and if you... <laughs> It's all different, you know, so you got to, uh, I knew a little German, but it was just different enough where I had to start over, and so, um, fortunately, everyone there speaks English, but, you know, you just feel, you just feel bad, because you can't, you know, you want them to tell the joke to you in their their language, not to tell it to you the second time in English, it's just not funny, you know what I mean? Lost in translation. Yeah, it's just, you know, you feel like just a bump on a log, you know, just an extra cog in the wheel. It, uh, you know, so I learned the language as fast as I could, also because that time was Watergate. That was Hmm. when Richard Nixon was lying to the American people, and I, I felt so ashamed to be an American, just traveling around at that time. 
that I wanted to learn the language as fast as possible and just be Dutch all the way, you know. So <laughs> within a year, I had I knew enough to to pass as a Dutch guy, basically. <laughs> and and uh, you know, then they were treating me as as equals, you know, in the band and stuff. But uh, you know, of course, the band broke up after a while, and um, I ended up staying on with the manager, and we became you know. Pretty good buds, I guess. I moved from Amsterdam to The Hague, where he lived, Mm -hmm. and I started living in his little four-track recording studio. Cool. Now, you know, it was just a demo studio where he would demo people, you know, for money and stuff, but I helped out in the studio and played sessions for free, and and, uh, meanwhile, I was building my demo, okay? so sure. uh, uh, Living in the studio was great. He had a grand piano. And uh, I could just go walking around during the daytime and Holy get cow, inspired cool. and then come back and write the song. And uh, at that time, I was writing like, I don't know, just uh, a lot, a whole lot. It's all I had to do. Uh-huh. You know, and my hero was, was still uh, Stevie Wonder. And uh-huh. I knew, you know, that's all Stevie had to do, right, was play <laughs> music all day. <laughs> so I was trying to be like him and Todd Rundgren. Yeah. And so uh, I think at one point I, I wrote nine songs in eight days. I think that was the record uh, I had. But <laughs> most of those songs were on my first album. Yeah. Because they, um, we got a we got a deal with um, EMI Bovema was the name of the label. Right. Out of Holland, and they um, they liked the demo, and they sent me to Los Angeles to record sure. the album. Right. Which was just you know a dream come true for me. In the meantime, I had met my. My wife of uh, 33 years. I met her in the meantime, and uh, I had to leave her and uh, her two kids, who were, who were four and two years old. Uh, I had to leave her and the kids to go record this album in Los Angeles. Well, the day I left was actually my 22nd birthday. Okay. okay. The day I left to go to L.A., she came down sick and had to go in the hospital where she almost died. Oh, my gosh. She had an infection on the inside, you know, like a female yeah. infection. Uh, and uh, I didn't know about any of this because, you know, at that time, people just didn't call every day. It was too far away, right. you know. So right. I didn't even know any of this, but, you know, I was having the time of my life in Los Angeles meeting all these cats. And and my uh, girlfriend, you know, my, my woman was in the hospital. Hmm. So unfortunately, her parents were taking care of everything, you know. And, uh, but anyway, that was just kind of a weird little sidelight. On my 22nd birthday, I flew to Los Angeles to record the Smiling Memories album. Right. And, um... And your manager went with you? or the, the no, no, actually he didn't. He uh, went alone, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he didn't. He just sent me off. And, and uh, we, we knew the producer, a guy named John DeAndrea. Mm-hmm. He was from Los Angeles, and he had done some work in Europe with some other Dutch bands, and... I think I met him in Brussels uh, somewhere, and uh, we decided that maybe he'd be good, you know, for me because uh, just you know he knew the ropes in L.A. a little bit, and so we got in touch with him, and and he was the producer, and I was under his wing the whole time I was there, and he just put me up at Sportsman's Lodge there in oh, yeah. the city. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, it's probably oh yeah. Evil Knievel was staying I've, there while, while I was there. I've stayed there once. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, not a bad neighborhood, though. There's some pollution. 
but uh, I wanted to I wanted to ask you did you know did you realize at, at the time you know when when you were sent there to Los Angeles to record Smiling Memories did you realize uh, the caliber of musicians you immediately came in contact with such as Lee Rittenauer you know you, you had Mike and Jeff Percaro on that album and, and some guy named David Foster who's that <laughs> I mean well, that was know, that was so David, heavy David's name I knew because of Skylark uh-huh. Okay. But you got to remember, this yeah. is 1975. This is January 75, right. okay? Uh, there was no Toto. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Jeff was just a session cat. You know, he was not even double scale at the time. All these guys were very young, single scale guys. I had asked for Buzzy Feeton. I knew <laughs> Buzzy from the, the Rascals album, Island of Real yeah. and Peaceful World. You know, I saw that. this guy... Uh, Buzzy Feeton on that album. He had actually sure. played with Paul Butterfield Blues Band at sure. 16. Uh-huh. He kind of reminded me of Stevie Ray a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I had asked for him, but I guess he wasn't available. And uh, so John DeAndrea, the producer, got me this cat named Rittenauer. I didn't know him from The Man on the Moon. But uh, <laughs> no, Jeff, too. I, I didn't know him. And uh, it was Mike, uh, Mike Picaro, his brother. It was his first session. No kidding. Very first session. No kidding. <laughs> that yeah, is great. And even uh, Steve was on the date, and he was 16, and he was sitting in the control room. I don't even think he'd ever been to a studio before. <laughs> so he, he hadn't even worked yet, I don't believe. He was just sitting watching, and uh, and Mike and Jeff were, were, were my rhythm section. So it was Mike's first session for sure, and uh, another person's first session as the first engineer was Humberto Gatica. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I yeah. think that might be where he and David hooked up for the first time. I'm not sure. God, that's but, amazing. But, uh, you know, I think they're still an item together, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was it was a Kendon Recorders in Burbank, and I think, oh, wait a minute. Well, no, Steely Dan had just recorded their Katie Lyde album. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, they had to record it all over again because the second engineer at Kendon... And it was, uh, I think he was bulk erasing a bunch of tapes, and he bulk erased their master. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, that was one of the first stories that Jeff told me. Uh, was Yeah, I was just here because, uh, yeah, yeah uh, Steely Dan, we just had to do this Katie Light album <laughs> over again. Holy cow. You know, they had to fire the guy and everything. I mean, he was uh, in a lot of trouble, needless Oh, my say. God. Oh my and, you God. know, just like a joke is never funny the second time, recording an album is never fun the second I'm time. I'm sure it's not. You know, so you can imagine how good these tunes were the first time. You know, if if uh, oh my God. a couple of these songs, you know, a couple of them are still classics off that oh, album, yeah. but yeah. you know, it's just you know, it's not it's not as fun. You know how meticulous they are. Oh, exactly. Hey, um, Eddie and I just saw them about a week and a half ago. Oh, you did. That's we, right. You guys were. We, checking out when they were coming to town. Yeah, stuff. yeah. They, we just saw them uh, perform Asia from top to bottom, and yeah, then they oh, went into some other stuff. And well, like we said a second ago, this is the first time, obviously, you met this this guy named Lee Rittenauer, which and that it was the beginning of what turned out to be a, a really long lasting musical yeah, relationship right. for you. Yeah, yeah. Lee played uh, fantastic, of course, and and uh, he showed an interest. Whereas you know, some of the guys, it can, you know, it's it's their living, you know, and they do this all day. So you know. After a while, you can get to the point where you really don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, I won't say any of these guys were that way, but, but Lee kept coming back to the studio to see how, how the progress was, you know? Uh-huh. And I think he liked the tracks, and he liked the songs, and he, just, uh, he was real encouraging. And he kept coming back just to see how it was going, you know? I thought that was really cool. And uh, so we, I guess we, uh, you know, exchanged numbers and all that where we could, you know, really keep in touch. And, 
of course, we didn't. I went back to <laughs> back to Holland. But <laughs> the next time I saw Lee was probably a year and a half later, maybe. I had decided to move back from Holland uh, to uh, to America to Texas. Of course, I moved back to Dallas where I could live the cheapest, you know. <laughs> and I brought my family with me. So by this time, I had uh, I, I married my wife, and I had two kids. I had an instant family, you know. Right. Uh, from Holland and and uh, trying to make a living in Dallas, but so um, I don't know why I went to New York. I forget now. I think uh, just to, I think I was peddling a demo or something up at the record companies. I, I know I went to Atlantic and some different uh, labels up there just to see if I could get anything going, you know. But while I was there, Lee Rittenauer played the bottom line with. Uh, gosh, let's see. He had Anthony Jackson. He had. Uh, uh, Don Grusin, um, you know, he, just, he had a lot of the cats, you know, and uh, Ernie Watts, I think, Patrice Russian right. was there, sure. and it was bitchin' band, you know, yeah, and right. uh, somehow got backstage and and hooked up again with Lee, and that's I believe when he asked me to send him a demo. So I think I sent him Mr. Briefcase and No One There, this other song. I think I'd been playing in a band in Dallas called Buster Brown. Uh-huh. Uh, they're kind of a legend around around Dallas. Um, they're back together again. These guys were, were the, the Texas version of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Although they only had one black guy. I think it was all it was all white guys that wanted to be black, kind of like. <laughs> and and, uh, and they played uh, just the funkiest stuff. They wrote their own tunes. They had a singer named Kelly McNulty. He's written about 50 songs with me at this mm-hmm. point. And he sounded exactly, I mean, exactly like Stevie Wonder, okay? Oh, so, okay. Um, we could do all those tunes, you know? And uh, But we, we wrote our own songs as well, and uh, that's when Mr. Briefcase got written. In fact, the bass player with that band wrote the bass part to Mr. Briefcase, that kind of slap thing. Yeah. And uh, they had hell trying to find a bass player in Los Angeles to play the bass part to Mr. Briefcase. Right. I think Lee and David put the put the track together. Uh, David Foster played the the keyboard part on a Prophet Ten or something. Right. Yeah. Tells, exactly. Tells you what year that was. And, <laughs> and um, they couldn't find. They tried different bass players till they asked Dave Hungate. Yeah. I'm sure Jeff had been playing. Played the drum drums on that song. So they asked David Hungate to come down and try it. Well, I thought he used a pick and everything, right? Right. Yep. Didn't he? He didn't even slap or anything. Yeah. But he was the cat that that could play that part. So interesting. So, so that's how they found the guy to play the slap part to Mr. Briefcase. And Very cool. I don't know how he did it. If he did it with a pick, I don't. I have any idea. <laughs> I wasn't there. Exactly. All I know, he was the guy that played it. Oh yeah, he, he's 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 pretty awesome. In fact, this is sort of funny. I just uh, emailed David um, earlier today. Really? Um, yeah, because we had hung up with him. We'll talk about this a little bit in Nashville a few a few weeks back. So uh, I I found out that he he had played on on Mr. Briefcase, and I and I right. emailed him and I told him, Hey, Dave, you know uh, we're going to be talking to Eric tonight. Uh, do you remember anything about Mr. Briefcase on on the Rit album? And, uh, and this is basically the the email that I got a couple hours ago. He said he says all I can remember is that it was an overdub, just me. It was Lee and the engineers. I recall yeah. Th- there was a synth bass on it, and basically just listen to to that track uh, a couple nights ago and holds up pretty darn good, he says. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was probably just him, he, he and Don Murray yeah. and, and Rittenauer. That was yeah. probably all was there. It was in uh, Monterey Studios yeah. in, uh, he in says, Glendale. He, he says hello, by the way. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, he, he worked on uh, 
the Dreamwalking album as well, yeah. I believe. Yeah. So uh, at that point, I did get to be there, and uh, yeah. that's when I, I finally met him in person. You know, you're talking about Mr. Briefcase. I mean, that's a really interesting uh, track because it's, uh, I believe it's it's the, it's one of the first tracks of the album, and and. Uh, it's really quite humorous because you know it's sort of fast driving, but you know as you li- you know uh, get into the lyrics of the song, I mean, you start understand that it's it's there's a lot of little funny things happening. I mean, I mean, I'm look, I've got the lyrics in front of me, and here's just a, a clip of it. It says, "Businessman, shake your hand, tell me lies, but hide your eyes, hand on real tight to your briefcase. If you should lose it, uh, you'll have to stand naked like me." I think that's so hilarious, you know. <laughs> and but the, you know the the track moves really fast. And I think Jeff and uh, David were very key in, in keeping up that rhythm, man. Yeah, yeah. They were the, well, you know, Lee knew who to call, let's put it that way. Yeah. Lee knew <laughs> who to call. And, you know, he didn't always use the same guys, you know, and uh, he's just uh, got quite a good uh, instinct for, for who to call. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure just playing all those sessions, he probably, he was probably doing five or six a day, don't you think? Yeah. You know, uh, he got to where he was triple scale and then off the scale, you know, so where you can just kind of pick and choose what dates you want to do at that point. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really around for a, lot of the, for a lot of the basic tracks on many of those songs by the time I got to town, because, you know, I commuted all the time. I was still living in Dallas. I don't know if you know that. I never mm. lived in Los Angeles. Uh, I was really? still a poor man living in Dallas. So you never moved there, huh? Never moved there. And, in fact, a lot of people that should have hired me in Dallas mm-hmm didn't know I was still there. Wow. They thought I'd moved. So, in fact, you know, Buster Brown uh, reformed without me. It was kind of oh, like I got God. fired from that band because they thought I was gone. They thought, <laughs> I was, they thought I was gone for good, you know, just uh, going to be moving. So they, they formed a band again without me. So <clears throat> I didn't have Jeez. a way to keep a steady thing going. So I was working on a landscape team wow. uh, for 10 years. During during a lot of those years, in fact, during all those written hour years, I uh-huh. was still having to dig ditches, just like my father had said I was going to be. Wow! I was doing that all those years because that's how you that's how you support a family with kids. Sure. And uh, you know, we we were still gigging too, but you can't just gig. You know, you have yeah. to do everything you can do. So I was doing the landscape thing from nine until five, and wow. then I would get ready to go down to the club at sure. ten, nine or ten. And play till one or two in the morning, and then yeah. go home and do it all over again. Wow. And that was uh, that was for ten years. Jeez. So, uh, you know, everything that I had smoked and drank the night before, I would sweat out and drink <laughs> enough water <laughs> the next day to, to get me ready for the next night. I'm sure I would have killed myself. Wow. You know, you know, clubs. You know, that'll 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 kill you. Yeah. I mean, you know. And uh, if I hadn't sweat all that stuff out and just worked it all off, I think you know. It would have killed me, probably. You know, yeah. it's all those years of every night doing, doing the songs. But. Yeah. Well, guys, let's take a short break and check out a sample of this song, "Mr. Briefcase," featuring our guest today, Eric Tag, on vocals.
Mr. Briefcase, a song featuring today's guest, Eric Tagg. Let's talk about a couple of projects. You mentioned the, the writ years that uh, while you were uh, recording that you were you were working, you know, back home in Dallas and, uh, you know, about those uh, those those recordings, the writ and the writ too. You know, in 81, I remember buying the the album. I, I really do. And as and as many, um, um, you know, listeners around the world did, you know, I, I basically just wore out all the vinyl grooves. In fact, I, st- I still have like, two, I wore, I think I have a, two records still, one that has never really been played, honestly. I still have one. But, uh, you know, the lineup of those musicians on that album yeah. were, were it, it just phenomenal. I, I, I still read the liner notes. And I know. It almost defined the, uh, the West Coast genre. It, it really mean? does. It, everybody that mattered was on this album. Isn't and, that weird? It, it is. And, and you, in your voice, really is is at the very center of this whole thing and and uh you know Phil and Gaines, Percaro, Boddicker, Mason, <laughs> Hungate, Acuna. These guys are gods. Richard T blesses you know, he's passed away. Yeah. John Pierce, Champlin. I mean we just saw Champlin a couple weeks ago. I and, never met Richard T. I would love to have Oh this amazing style. Don Grusen and, and of course yeah. Lee Rittenauer. I mean we're talking the the foundation of West Coast and uh yeah. I mean, you just must be really blessed that you were even able uh, to be a part of this thing, you know? Just providence that I was able to be out there when I was out there. And with with Lee, you know, knowing what he knew about who to call, Yeah, uh, that was, you know, the perfect perfect match, you know. He needed me for some stuff, and, and those guys um, that you just mentioned, yeah. you know, took me up about five levels of where I was before. Yeah. You know, from just playing in bands in Texas, uh, of just knowing the ropes of the business and knowing the craft of songwriting and to know how to play with, with people, to know how to to fit in, you know, how to uh, do what is needed on a track and not, nothing more. You know, mm-hmm. don't put too much in. Leave some space for somebody else. You know, all those things that, you know, if you're in your youthful enthusiasm of wanting to show what you can do or whatever, you can do way too much, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And that just messes it all up. Right. But those cats already knew that, so there was never any any ego thing like that in the way at all. These cats knew each other like a book, and and you know, it was like the first time reading it down, they had it, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, right, exactly. I, I, it was unheard of, because we, we had to work on stuff here in Texas over and over and, you know, day after day mm-hmm. to try 
try to get it to feel right. right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And, you know, it was, sometimes it was just, you know, the drummer, it wouldn't work out. You know, you had to get yeah. somebody else. Right. But with this, you know, it was Harvey and Nathan, or mm-hmm. it was uh, Abraham and yeah. Alex, Acuna, right. you right. know. It it felt good the first time, right? And that yeah. was just unheard of for me. I was on cloud nine, <laughs> and you know, of course, uh, Lee had me playing some some keyboards uh-huh. uh, live and everything, just because I'm really not a lead singer. You know, I can't just stand up there, yeah, and do that. And uh, I have to have something to hide behind. Mm-hmm. It was always bass and a little keyboards, but uh, so Lee was nice enough to let me kind of have a little shadow keyboard <laughs> to hide behind. Of course, John Grusin was doing the main things that we right. needed and he usually said we don't really need you to play too much on this one yet. <laughs> keep it simple <laughs> i would get in the way you know so a lot of times i would just kind of throw it down and pick up a kibasa or something right. you know? but um yeah well your your voice is painted all over this album and it's uh when when it uh in fact you actually had a pretty huge part in the writing because you actually wrote uh, i think mr briefcase was was your tune um, yeah. But you also wrote uh, uh, "Tell Me Pretty Lies" and "No Sympathy" with Lee, and then the big number, which was "Is It You?" You actually wrote that with Bill Champlin and Lee, right? Lee and and uh, and Bill had started that song uh-huh. maybe a couple months ahead of time, and uh, I don't know. They took it to a place, and it just stopped. And I, make, I guess they got busy with something else, but it just kind of sat there for a while. And when I got out there again, I had remembered hearing it on a demo that Lee had sent me. But uh, we wrote all those songs, the lyrics and melody to all those songs you just mentioned, I think in about a week. Uh, you know, Lee knew what he wanted to do with them rhythm-wise yeah. rhythm and track-wise. Maybe we just didn't have the melody and the lyrics for all those tunes. I was yeah. ready to do something. So when I got to town, all I had to do was write lyrics. Yeah. So we, we got them done pretty fast. And I remember the song, Is It You?, because Lee, I mean, Bill had already had a bunch of lyrics for that song, but it was in a different form. Yeah. And I think the the verse was the chorus, or vice versa. Uh, we just kind of turned it around, and I added some verses, and and uh, the verse became the bridge, and the verse, or the bridge became <laughs> the chorus, or something. I, actually, the chorus and the verse on that song are the same, if you if you think about yeah, it. It's yeah. the same chord progression uh d minor g minor and c minor uh-huh. for the verse and the chorus so the only change is when it goes to the bridge but uh you know bill champlin like i told you was my hero okay mm-hmm. for for years since 1969 since i'd heard the uh the bill the sons of champlin right. double album right. sure loosen up naturally it came out the same day that chicago album came out did you know that yeah they, one was Capital and one was Columbia. They came out on the same day? They came out the same day. <laughs> and they were both <laughs> horn that. bands. You know, there weren't too many horn bands in 1969. Yeah. They, they were like the uh, the answer to each other, you know. Uh, Columbia needed somebody to answer Capitals or vice versa, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, I guess Chicago won the initial battle. Because <laughs> 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 nobody, uh, you know, you had to be a kind of a cult guy to know who the sons of Champlin were well, in Texas. And a lot of that kind of, mu- a lot of that style of music, though, was uh, coming out of the Oakland area, you know, yeah. with, with the sons of Champlin and Tower of Power, and, you know, there's there's a lot of deep bands that a lot of people have probably never even heard of, but it, had, it was really its own scene there. True. I, I didn't know about Tower of Power. My brother had gone out there. He knew somebody in, from California, and he went out to visit in 1968 or 9, and he came back you know, with you, 
you got to hear the sons of Champlin. You heard them at a club <laughs> uh-huh. where they were playing uh, like three instruments apiece, yeah. switching off in the middle of songs, you know, switching instruments, you uh-huh. know, all doing the vocals, you know, uh, smoking cigarettes and dope on stage or whatever, you know, there's a legend, you know, about it. But, uh, you know, I don't know, but uh, he came back just, you got to hear the sun. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think that right after that, the album came out and... Uh, We've been disciples, you know, ever since then. I turned everybody I knew on to the Sons of Champlin. I think they had a following in Texas because of my brother and I, I really did. But, um, well, well, speaking of Bill Champlin, Eddie, Eddie and I were both in uh, Nashville a few weeks ago for the Musicians Hall of Fame induction yeah. ceremony. And okay, we, yeah, right. We were able to have Bill Champlin and his son Will as, as sort of our guest for the evening. Oh, and uh, and uh, yesterday he just emailed Eddie and Eddie what did he say He's like, he said uh, he said uh, just tell Eric that I'm setting up a ping pong table and I demand a rematch because he says he years ago he kicked my butt and and it's too many years ago to even mention so I think he's a <laughs> wow that's a pretty good memory yeah, is that a memory. true story it was, it was he and Rit against me and uh, either Don Murray or David Foster I can't that's, remember that's cool uh, yeah with the uh, days in Monterey where, where you're sitting around waiting for the mix or whatever you know you're waiting for something you're always waiting on a snare drum sound or something <laughs> i don't know waiting, but uh, there's many chances to use the ping pong table <laughs> that's funny uh, i finally met bill for the uh the recording to uh to do the vocals on is it you i you know even though we had written that song together i still hadn't met him and so he came down to the studio there in monterey that night in 1980 and uh he showed up and I was pretty much on my knees kind of thing, you know, wow, you know. And he said, wow, uh, yeah, why don't you do the lead vocal and I'll do all the backgrounds. I said, are you, no. You know, he said, no, you've done it pretty good on the demo or whatever. He said, why don't you do it and I'll do all the backgrounds. So I had to do that that vocal in front of Bill Champlin. Jeez. You know, and, uh, you know, needless to say, it took me a few, a few takes. And, you know, I was very embarrassed, you know, just singing in front of him, but... But once we got the vocal down, then the rest of the night I could just relax and watch Bill do his thing, you know, watch him do his thing. And I remember calling Maria, my wife, and saying, you're not going to believe what just happened. (laughs) You know, I just sang in front of Bill Champlin, you know, and he's in the backgrounds right now to me. (laughs) And uh, it was just, you know, that's just one of the the high points probably in my musical life. Yeah, Bill admires you, you as well because uh, one of our correspondents for Inside Music Cast is Brian Pearson, and he he recently told Brian that uh, if, if this is a quote, if if Eric would sing the nightly news, weather, and sports, he would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. That's a compliment. Wow. <laughs> That's a compliment. <laughs> wow. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to hear another of Eric's tracks. Uh, let's take another quick break and check out the song "Promises, Promises" from Eric's 1982 Dreamwalking album.
Promises, Promises by today's guest, Eric Tag. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, Eric, but, you know, honestly, it's uh, you have such a, a still, you know, a huge fan base all over the world. And, and they still, you know, people still treasure your music, your vocal talents. And and they're very hugely interested in, in what, what what you're doing, what you've been doing. And But, you know, we just wanted to let you know that, uh, you know, you're, you're still admired all over the place. Wow. And people really dig your vibe, your vocals. And speaking of vocals, you know, my, my question um, is, is sort of vocally um, uh, focused right now. But um, how do you keep from as a vocalist, from over-singing. You know, so many vocalists tend to over-sing, whether it's melodically or, uh, you know, whatever. But how, how do you approach your music? You know, you, we've been talking about writ and, and these classic uh, songs. I mean, on writ too, you cross my heart, promises, dream walking. How do you keep from not over-singing? How, how, what's your approach to that, you know? I don't know if I know the answer to that. All I know is the guys I was playing with out there, they taught me to leave space. You know, that's the way they play. Mm-hmm. 
where you're not getting in the way of anybody. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm playing with Lee, you know, just thinking of that as an example. You know, he was usually playing off of me, and I was singing off of him, right? Yeah, so yeah. if we're doing anything at the same time, it's probably a mistake because, you know, it really should, it should fit together like a puzzle, right? You know, yeah. the way the drums and bass fit together, you know, uh, you can you can almost, you know, the, the kick drum and the bass part are, should be identical, right? I mean... Right. Uh, there, there's hardly any extra stuff, so you know I don't know what to answer, but you know you got to leave some space, you know, because uh, you know there's still some stuff going to come on the record after this. You know what I mean? They're going to have to be some holes to put some stuff in. Now, where you're talking about maybe having problems is when you do things live, and you're in the uh, the verve, you're in the energy of the moment, you know, and you. You're excited, you know. You got you know people out there that are you know enthusiastic. You know, then you, you can get too too worked up, I think, and you can want to throw too much stuff in. Yeah. You know, and you want to do the ad libs, but gosh, at least sing the melody for a couple of verses, you know, so you can establish the melody. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, you, if you're doing a live thing, usually the people kind of know your songs by that time. Anywhere they wouldn't sure. come to the concert, but as far as a record, you know. Uh, establish the melody first, for gosh sakes. You know, let them know uh, how the song was meant to, to sound, how how it was written, you know, and then maybe, you know, by the third verse, you can take it up the octave or, you know, or you can do the alternative melody, you know, the, the, ones that, the one that you wanted to do, but, you know, didn't, didn't think it would uh, work, you yeah. know, but, you know, if you're in the enthusiasm of the moment, I guess you can go to that, that alternative melody or do the ad-libs after they've laid the backgrounds down or something where you know this isn't gonna this isn't gonna step on anybody if I do this or Yeah. I don't know, you know, where I tend to oversing is singing too loud. Really? Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh especially, you know, live. I've never had a, a sophisticated enough monitor system to <laughs> to mm-hmm. allow myself to sing soft on stage. So I tend to just you know, and all the nightclub gigs I've done, you just tend to scream. Yeah, you know? right, yeah. And I'm, that's what I'm talking about with all those, you know, night after night of club dates. I don't know how we survived. I mean, you know, how our voices even survived because, you know, you're putting everything into it, and then by by Wednesday night, you've lost your voice. You know, you still got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday to go. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. You know, and somehow you got to get your voice back and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, the drinking the water and sweating. <laughs> yeah. That probably saved me. Yeah, we've talked to several singers in the past, you know, Richard Page, um, you know, and, and even personally, you know, we've talked to, to you know, Bobby Kimball and, and, and most of these singers that are power singers and, and, and do this day in and out and the tours and, and the nights are so tough. You know, they do have a certain regimen, you know, as to, really? you know, as to how they preserve. I mean, what if some people told us, Rick, I mean, as to what they do in, in drinking certain things and, and resting their throats, you know? Oh, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned Bobby Kimball. I, I caught him one time after a Toto concert and, and oh, cool. I wanted to talk to him and, and he wouldn't, he, he basically whispered to me and he goes, I'm going to bed. Wow. <laughs> he, he didn't go to the after party. He was walking back to the hotel because he had a gig the next night and, and he just, he, the he, mistake he, he made was, was, was doing those songs on the record in those keys. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He never should have do done that. that. You got to sing this the rest of your life. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Oh man, I feel, <laughs> I feel sorry. He's got such a great voice. I mean, 
Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, your, your voice is your livelihood, man. That goes out, and that, there you go, you know? Yeah, that, that would be tough. Yeah. To do well, a new key on, you know, the song. You know, I heard that Stevie, when he was out on the road, when he was, I guess, you know, 14 or 15, his voice changed in the middle of a tour. <laughs> and they had the whole Motown orchestra with him. So they couldn't change the keys. He was having to sing the keys of the 12-year-old genius, you know? Oh, my gosh. And he just flat, he had to go home. He couldn't, he couldn't cop it, you know? His, his voice changed in like one night, you know? It became a, wow. it became a, a tenor instead of a soprano, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, listen, I, I want to talk to you about, g- give us a very short little brief um, evolution, if you will. Let's, let's turn to your to, to your solo work, uh, you know, uh, from you know, smiling memories in '75, Rendezvous, Dreamwalking, and even you know, most lately, um, you know, through your eyes, um, through these solo albums, what was happening? I mean, what where what what are the different steps that that takes you from smiling memories to through my eyes? You know, give us a little walkthrough as to. Okay, well, you know, you're these... talking about 40 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, just, uh, it's a lot of... 40 years here. Um, um, you know, Smile of Memories was... I'm really just trying to uh, to do my dream, you know. Yeah. Ever since I'd seen Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and Cream and, you know, Janis Joplin or whoever, you know, I'd seen back in the 60s that made me just want to do this for a living. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're following your dream, right, wherever yeah. it would take you. Mm-hmm. And I was just fortunate enough to have a father that sent me to Europe... And, you know, being over there was uh, a chance for me to be somebody that nobody knew me, so I could be anybody I wanted to be, really. You know what I mean? Right. I didn't have any, anything holding me back. You know, anybody that knew me that knew I was just a podunk, snooty kid from North Dallas. But, <laughs> you know, so since nobody knew that, I could be Todd Rundgren, basically. Or, you know, I could be, some, you know, Elton John if I wanted to be. You yeah. know, at that point, it gave me enough of a, a chance just to, to go out there and be somebody, you know yeah, what I mean? Right. So going over there, that was probably the key to to doing what I did when I did it, you know, in my early uh, 20s, you know. And, uh, you know, I had a house in Amsterdam. I had a little room that cost me 20 bucks a month. I lived right in the center of town, <laughs> right around the corner from the the Rijksmuseum and the Concertgebouw. Uh, you know, I was in this, the best part of Amsterdam for 20 bucks a month. Wow. And I had a, a, a room up four flights of stairs that uh, burned down with me in it one night. And uh, that <laughs> that little episode uh, was the basis for the album cover on Smiling Memories. Oh, I was wondering. Yeah, that was a real fire. That was a real fire. <laughs> and the only thing left that didn't burn was my lyrics and the the there's a lyric book on the back cover of that Smiling Memories album. Uh-huh. It looks like a burned music page. Yeah. Well, that's actually a whole book of songs. There's about sixty songs in there. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, I had a few more songs than that. You know, some of them burned up. I just call it an act of God telling me to, okay, now write some good ones. <laughs> yeah. But I actually went back and found that lyric book in there after I thought I'd lost everything. And I found that that book had had about 50 or 60 little ideas in there. Uh, a number of those were on the Smiling Memories album. So at least I didn't have to write the lyrics over again for yeah. any of those songs. But, sure. you know, uh, there's, there's usually a few years in between uh, the records. Now, you know, uh, the Rendezvous album came pretty quick after Smiling Memories because uh, I was young and I was still writing a lot of songs. There was also a Dutch, uh, a Dutch album. Dutch produced and uh, rec- 
recorded in Texas with a good friend of mine, Hans Vermeule, who lived in uh, The Hague. Still one of my good friends, uh-huh. and he's one of my wife's best friends of all time. So mm-hmm. I still keep in touch with Hans. And um, yeah, that was in 1977, so I guess about a year and a half later that we did Rendezvous. And I used all the all the cats in Dallas that I was playing with, and uh, including my brother was was playing bass on that album. But um, so that was all done in Dallas. First chance to have uh, to write my own string charts and use the Dallas uh, Symphony. To, uh, to record with, I got to direct. You know, I got to direct the orchestra. <laughs> so that was a big. That was a big time for me. I cool. think I was twenty three years old. Twenty three years old at the time. Uh, twenty three or twenty four, maybe. But anyway, uh, and after that, it was nineteen eighty one when Lee decided. To, I guess he got an offer from a Japanese label to uh, to produce uh, an album for Electek. You know, for Japan mm-hmm. only. That mm-hmm. was the Dreamwalking album. Right. Yeah. And we did that right after the first tour there from the Rit, the Rit album. Yeah. You know, kind of a funny story off that Rit. I was still working landscape, like I told you, in Dallas. And I, at this point, um, uh, I was, it's, I think I was pulling weeds in some shopping center. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. Okay. You That's know. cool. But uh, the song, Is It You, came on over the little loudspeaker there on the little strip center I was doing. The <laughs> song, Is It You, came came on the radio. Uh, it came on great. the music thing. And I jumped up and said, that's me, or that's us, or whatever I yelled. And I think the people that were there going in the stores, yeah, I saw them just jump out of the way because I was holding this grub hoe, this, <laughs> holding this shovel in my hand. I thought I was going to kill somebody or something. Right, like, oh, sure, buddy, that's you. That's yeah, right. You know? Go back to your grub room. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But, uh, yeah, that's how I first realized that this could really, this could really do something. You know wow, what I mean? That's that good. was the first time I really realized that, wow, you know, this could be real, because yeah. up to that point, anything I had done had just been released in Holland, mm-hmm. and even what I had done with Lee, I just thought it was going to be kind of a jazz uh, curiosity or whatever, sure, you know, right. and uh, I didn't know that anything was really going to happen. I mean, hmm. no, nothing usually happens, right, with, with all us guys. <laughs> it's one in a thousand if yeah. somebody gets a chance to actually be on the radio, right? Well, yeah. especially if it's a jazz guitarist with a lyric. I mean, that's uh, almost unknown, unprecedented, yeah. you know? Yeah, that, um, was, that was really... Uh, went top 20, I think. That was really something, you know, but just had to be there. You just had to be there, but it was right after that that we recorded the Dreamwalking thing, and and again, you know, uh, Lee put all those tracks together. I, I We kind of agreed on the songs. During one of my trips out there, we kind of agreed on these songs. I think I probably played him a hundred songs, wow. and he picked out uh, ten or twelve. And the next time I saw him, all those tracks were ready. So I didn't have, I didn't really have a hand in you know any of the arranging or production on that album. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that it was totally out of my hands. So, and I have to say, I felt kind of powerless. And some of the songs I was very pleased, and some of the songs I was very disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just kind of had another idea for, you know, I won't tell you which is which. Sure. But uh, I just kind of had another idea on a couple of those songs. But, but you know, since I didn't live out there, I, had, I was kind of at the mercy of uh, what was going on and, and right. when uh, the label could afford to uh, to fly me out there, you know. Yeah. So, so um, you know, that was, that was summer of 81. And I got to take my family out there and have a little Disneyland vacation while I was putting on the vocals. 
That's cool. Yeah, so uh, sometimes you get you get some of the perks. Yeah. I finally got to go to uh, to Japan with my wife in 1997 or eight after we had done the Through My Eyes album. Now you got to you got to know this is 15 years later. Right? Yeah, right, right, right. So I dream walking and then add 15 years and then Through My Eyes. Okay, so so not only for Japan did I have to introduce myself again, but but uh, you know I had to I had to kind of introduce myself to myself again. You know, yeah, yeah. I had been doing mostly uh, commercials and what we call jingles out here yep. in Dallas. I was, uh, you know, I was doing studio all day, so I had finally gotten out of the landscape, you know, business. But uh, I was mostly doing commercials all day, so so this being an artist thing was was still new to me. So uh, so uh, it was nice to get to take Maria to Japan in 1997, and the band, the band we had at that point was Harvey. And Don Grusin. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was Alfonso Johnson on bass. We had Larry Carlton on guitar <laughs> and Eric Marienthal on sax. And, and we were all playing our own stuff. So everyone had their own albums that they were selling out in the in the lobby, you know, yeah, of yeah. Wow. venues. And uh, we played each other's songs. So we did like, oh, you know, three, three of my songs. We did uh, three weather report tunes from Alfonso. Yeah. <laughs> And we did some of Don's tunes. We did a bunch of uh, Larry's tunes. We did a couple of Eric's, and and uh, and we even did a bunch of Harvey's tunes. So it was it was a blast. Those guys, man, and you know, <laughs> at this point, I had been playing in church. You know, I was a I was a worship leader at a church. Yeah, and I was working with volunteers. Okay, that you know, like Uncle Ned and Aunt Sally. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Let's make something out of this. <laughs> and to go from that setting into into this band Jeez, setting. Wow. Well, you can imagine, you know, after 15 years, it was just, uh, it was just wild, you know. So, <laughs> and then, of course, then I had to go back to the church and play with Aunt Sally again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was tough. That was yeah. a tough thing. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we could do this interview without playing the song Dreamwalking. So let's kick back and uh, let's take a listen. Thank you. 
title track from Eric's 1982 release, that was Dreamwalking. A few minutes ago you mentioned uh, your brother Larry, who um, our listeners might know as the tag of Bourgeois Tag, uh, yeah. with, with the musical partner Brent Bourgeois. H- how did he influence you, or how did you influence him, and how often have you both collaborated with each other over the years? Okay. We definitely influenced each other, but you know... Uh we had a different circle of friends, and, and I think Larry was a little more into the rock. I won't say rock and roll. He was into rock, mm-hmm. whereas I could probably be categorized as more of the singer-songwriter or yeah. mm-hmm. funk. Right. As a bass player, I was more into funk. Right. As a keyboard player, songwriter, I was more into Laura Nero, mm-hmm. Todd Rundgren, uh, you know, uh, Stevie, Elton John, that kind of thing, Joni Mitchell, whereas he was into... Paul Rogers, you know. Okay, okay. Uh, he was into Yes. Yep. Yeah, right. You know, I, I liked Cream. He liked Yes. or You know, so we're a little bit different in that yeah, sense. Yeah, right. And uh, Larry was very, uh, and is, very meticulous in his writing. He took much care and thought uh, to write his songs. Now, he might not write as fast and uh, prolifically as I did. Where I, you know, I have one take. You know, I don't usually go back and rewrite, write and rewrite. You know, I wish I did. I wish I'd rewritten a lot of those lyrics, you know. Mm-hmm. But I usually just wrote one set of lyrics, and then I just went on to the next song, you know. Larry worked on his stuff. You know, he worked on it. 
And uh, his became like works, you know, whereas mine were just little songs, you know. His were more, they were worked out, you know. Right, he exactly. had the, the parts all worked out and everything. So I respected that from him, and I, uh, I love his voice, and I like his songs, and uh, I love the way he works everything out. And uh, I, can, I, w- I just love to put on his, his music, you know. I like to put on his music to play people and go, yeah, we'll listen to this. And they're going, who is that? You know, I'm going, oh, that's my brother. You're kidding. <laughs> I don't even know if you guys know his solo stuff as Larry Tag after Bourgeois Tag, but he, he came up with some some pretty neat uh, stuff on his own after Bourgeois Tag. Uh-huh. He's kind of selling out of the trunk of his car, kind of like I am. <laughs> but um, no, he's got some great stuff. Uh, we just never lived close enough yeah. to each other to really uh, establish quite a a musical relationship with each other. Yeah. Um, he was probably mad that I got on, on record first. Cause I remember, <laughs> you know, in fact, I know he was mad. <laughs> That's funny. He didn't even... He didn't even want to come back to Dallas <laughs> without making his own album first. Because right. <laughs> he'd have to face his friends, and, and they'd say, "Yeah, your little brother's working with her right now, or something, or whatever." You know. <laughs> and so he didn't even come back to Dallas until he had Bourgeois Tag. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, because of that. And only when he had those albums, you know, with Island, and you know, he'd worked with some pretty heavy guys himself, and. Right. He even sold a few tunes to uh, Lee Rittenauer, as a matter of fact. But uh, but uh, it was funny that he had that little jealousy going on for a while. <laughs> and, you know, we don't have that anymore, I'll have to say. And, yeah. uh, of course, when you're 50 years old, you kind of get over those things, right? Exactly. Yeah. But. yeah. Hey, listen, over over the, well, after Through Your Eyes, no, you, your music tends to uh, surely include a, a sort of a, a spiritual message woven that's into your music. It's beautiful. And and uh, at what point in time did your spiritual growth uh, start being injected into what Eric Tagg was producing musically, you know? Oh, man. The spiritual side to my life came in 1976. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> it didn't carry over into my music or my lyrics until yeah. maybe sometime last week. You know, I mean, yeah. it, the the song, the the album through my eyes was was a perfect chance for me after 15 years yeah. of a hiatus to to say something. You know, that I really <laughs> believed and lived. You know, right. but you know, since it was for Japan, I kind of had this weird thing that I didn't want to offend anybody sure. you know yeah. with this Jesus thing and uh, and so I kind of toned down my lyrics again of course I had to do it with Lee, Lee Lee's not a believer he he wanted the love song kind of lyrics and, and I can write those you know practically while I'm talking on the phone yeah right but you know I like to spend a little bit of thought and really write something kind of heavy sometimes you know mm-hmm. and, and I, I didn't totally get to do that with Lee but with for my own project, I think you know that affords you a little more freedom to really say something. I really wanted to do that, but then I started thinking about Japan and and uh, yeah, right. you know Zen and Buddhism and all the you know stuff. And I said, gosh, you know, maybe I should kind of tone it down. Yeah, right. well, what a what a stupid thing to do. You know, the first thing that I heard when I went over there for that to to uh, promote that album, the first artist I heard in Tokyo on the radio was. Kirk, <laughs> you're not going to believe Kirk it. Franklin. No. Yeah. And it? it was, I mean, it was just so blatant gospel. And that was God telling me, see, you could have done it. You know, you could have done it. 
They didn't care what you were singing about. They didn't care what you were singing about, and that was your chance. In fact, Japan was even your perfect chance to say something that you couldn't even say in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You, You couldn't have gotten away with that in the United States, but... I could have gotten away with it in Japan. What a knucklehead. Interesting. I'm yeah. still kicking myself about that because, you know, if you're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, ashamed of the gospel. You know, that, that's, um, and, and really, if, and I'm glad you even noticed, Eddie, or, or, because, or, because some of those lyrics do have a kind of spiritual... Yeah, they do. I, they them, I try to make it, you know, double entendre or whatever, you know. Yeah. Or songs like uh, "Never Too Far" and and "Main Man" and um, sure. um, oh, I can't even think of all the titles now. But ma- many of the songs on that record kind of had a sing along with love. They kind of had a, uh, a spiritual side to them from the point of view of of the Lord talking about His love for us. Mm-hmm. And you can either see that as a love song for a guy to a chick or you right. can see it as from the creator to his creation yeah mm-hmm. I mean that's inherently a part of, of your life right now I mean that's why we're asking this question we listen to music we listen to the lyrics and and from a, from a you know backing away and, and seeing the whole piece for what the musical um, you know the body is you know you're able to, to see this and I, I think it's a neat thing I mean your music is your music you know um, and uh, you know and, you and that, that sort of <laughs> takes you where you are right now you're, you're actually a worship leader tell us a little bit about your music that you're creating right now actually you know, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's not at this point. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind yeah. of a nice side of this. Is I, I don't take the artist Eric Tag into the church and try to be somebody yeah, right. that's trying to sell a CD or something like that. I, yeah. I, I learned a long time ago, and I've been doing this now for um, since early '90s, maybe. Yeah. Uh, not actually paid for a living, but I've been working in church for mm-hmm. that long, mm-hmm. and I don't take the artist Eric Tag in there, yeah. you know, um, I'm promoting somebody else, <laughs> yeah, okay, you and, got a mission, church. Yeah. and uh, I do write songs for for the Lord, and I've probably got, um, you know, over 400 songs now, many of those, you know, I can play in church, but I don't try to shoehorn my way in there, if a song fits and I, you know, like for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I needed a song. Preacher was preaching about uh, "Thou shalt not uh, lie," or uh, yeah, you know, it's, it was about he's on the Ten Commandments. You know, mm-hmm. how do you find songs about uh, not coveting mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or not not lying? Well, I just happened to have one, you know, about not about uh, you know about that subject, and mm-hmm. so I use it then, you know. And I don't think anybody even knew it was my song, but. But I'm not in there to promote me at all. Yeah. Uh, that is, you know, I'm trying to reach people in a different way yeah, and for a completely different reason, and it's not to sell anything. Right. You know, I'm not even trying to sell the gospel or trick somebody into coming to our church mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, I'm trying to take them to the throne of grace, and then when they get there, that's between them and God. You know, if they want to lay it all down and just take the burden away, and accept, you know, what he has offered and provided for them, then they can do that. And it's usually through no fault of mine, you know, that they're there, and yeah. that I've uh, facilitated their journey in some way, you know. Yeah. 
and that's good enough for me. And uh, I'm I'm happy that I'm in there somewhere. You know, I'm happy that somebody uh, is having me play something for somebody. Yeah. And uh, you know, at this point, uh, I like I like putting the music together. And uh, you know, I'm not working with the caliber of the cats I was, and yeah. that's okay. And uh, you know, uh, uh, I pray daily to have uh, Larry Carlton come uh, live here in uh, Greenville, <laughs> Texas. <laughs> but uh, you know, you're you're just you're doing what you're doing, yeah. and uh, you know, you're you're making it as good as you can. Sure, and, sure, uh, sure. A lot of times, you're very surprised. You know, wow, you know, wow, that was really cool, and it's uh, cool for a different reason, maybe than it used to be. But uh, there's some cool things happening, and there's some miracles happening. Yeah. And uh, there's definite reason to get up every morning. And uh, it's usually not nothing about uh, what's going to happen for the cause of Eric Tag. Yeah, right. Anything, but something much greater than that. Well, good. Hey, well, listen. Hey, I want to thank you, me, Rick. Want to thank you for being with us. Uh, uh, we've had a lot of things uh, from the history, especially in even where your musical career has brought you to, and also the life experience. And you know, thanks for giving us a lot of insight. I think uh, it's it's been fun, and and uh, we definitely take uh, thank you for your time. You yeah. Know? Well, definitely. it was fun for me too. I'm, I probably got the years wrong and all that stuff. It's <laughs> so long ago. But, uh, <laughs> thanks, you know, for thinking about me. And just for, you know, keeping me in your prayers, for just keeping me yeah. in there, you know. And uh, I don't think I knew that, that uh, I'd really done anything special until uh, I started to kind of, you know, scoot around the Internet a little bit yeah, and yeah, kind of yeah. see, wow, right. you know, somebody listened to that. Or, you know, so it's really been kind of mm-hmm. gratifying that there were some people that really noticed Absolutely. Uh, some of the things we did. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, I thank you all so much. Well, cool. Very cool. Um, I do have one one last question. Uh, we get an awful lot of emails and requests asking, you know, before we interview people, you know, we sort of ask for some, uh, would you ask, uh, what would you ask the artist, that type of thing. And, and people want to know, is is there any accessibility to any of your older music that's that's out there? And we know it's all out of print, but do, are you familiar with any ways other than uh, – eBay or whatever, and getting music. Uh, what it, do you know anything about that at all? Uh, you know, uh, people are writing me uh, daily. Uh, yeah, where where do you get the stuff? And I usually just uh, ask for their address and give it to them. You know, really? so uh, I don't know. Um, no, all I know is that um, Japan. You know, they they are my biggest supporters mm-hmm. and. They've gone back and re-released all the early uh, stuff on CD. I think Vivid Sound in Japan has released Smile of Memories and Rendezvous. And, and there's even four extra songs on the Rendezvous album that weren't released on the original album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, they released Dreamwalking and Through My Eyes. So all my stuff, uh, solo-wise, is available through Japan. I'm even negotiating now to release uh, two more albums um, that of unreleased stuff and, and uh, newer stuff uh, at this point, so there could be some more stuff out there, okay. but uh, hopefully soon. But I uh, I really don't know, and I know you know I feel so bad that people have to pay what they do to get these imports, you know. <laughs> well, but I, I really don't know any other way. I, I'm really kind of out of the loop out here in Greenville, Texas. Yeah, right. To know they're definitely not here in. Uh, in the Hastings bookstore, you know, here in <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I don't know what to say. Okay. Um, maybe the Amazon used aisles or something, you know? You're right. Yeah. yeah but that's all, I, that's all I know. I, I apologize. 
No big deal. Uh, you know, I can't sell I can't sell Japanese CDs out of my house. Exactly. They, they well, own those uh, recordings, but well, perhaps there's a way you can. Uh, it's maybe at some point get your catalog up on iTunes or something like that. You know, I guess somebody's got to show me the ropes on that. You know, uh, I, I'm just barely in, uh, on Facebook now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't get a cell phone till I think last year. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're going to have to. You need our help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys keep in touch with me. All right. Hey, thanks again. All right. Well, let me know what I should be doing. All right. <laughs> thanks again, Eric. Thank you all so much. We'll talk to you later. Take talk care. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Eric Tagg for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.